0: I think we've all had moments or perhaps seasons in life when we feel like misfits, uh, that we're different, we don't quite fit in, we feel like an outsider. I remember the first time I felt like a misfit. Uh, It's when we moved to Texas when I uh, was nine years old in 1992. Uh, I brought a picture, that's how I looked, the unapologetic fourth grade come over, and the Jackson Pollock rayon shirt. (laughs) I have a very clear memory of moving here. My family had lived in uh, upstate New York near Lake Ontario for about a little over two years prior to moving here. And um, I remember this. I have this clear memory of of landing at DFW Airport Uh, and looking out the window and thinking, where are all the trees? You know, uh, where are the hills? Why do all the houses look exactly the same? Why is everything brown? It was January. And um, so we were looking for a house, and I remember our realtor, who in retrospect was clearly going above and beyond, began to introduce us to the delicacies that I now have come to appreciate for so many years Bluebell, Limeade, which we'd never heard of, uh, barbecue, of course, Tex Mex. And when we, I think when we bought our house, uh, she bought me and my brother cowboy boots, like little cowboy boots. I remember getting them and being like, all right, I live in Texas. I'm, I'm obviously a cowboy. I have the boots now. That's what I'm going to do in life, apparently. Now, it, I was in fourth grade. It was the middle of the school year when we moved. So I in a new state, new part of the country, new culture, new kid at school in the middle of a school year. And um, the day before I started school, my mom took me to the school to meet my teacher. And we went at the end of the day. This is The actual school, those are the doors. I remember clearly walking through those doors. It was the end of the day, and so my first glimpse of the school was all these kids stampeding out at the end of the day, and I'm kind of fighting against the the current there to get back and meet my teacher. And and as I did this, um, oh, I should say I wore the cowboy. (laughs) So I had the cowboy boots on I'm walking through the school And I quickly realized no one wears cowboy boots So thank the lord I realized It's the day before I actually started school Uh, But overall it went well I liked my teacher, I made friends But I still felt like a misfit for a while Because people said y'all I'd never heard that before, that was a little weird People said yes ma'am and yes sir And I was like is everyone in the army here Why are you guys saying this Uh, And I remember the first day at lunch, the the cafeteria served chicken fried steak, which I'd never heard of. I'm like, "What do you guys eat here?" It was so weird. I remember people making jokes all the time that they thought were hilarious about something called an Aggie that I'd never heard of before. And I remember thinking, "I have no idea what an Aggie is, but based on these jokes, I definitely don't want to be one." I don't know what it is. Uh, and I think probably my favorite memory of this time was for a few weeks or a month. I don't know. Uh, a few kids were calling me New Yorker, well as if I just rolled in from the Bronx or something, like, hey, I'm walking here. It's like, I lived there for two years
1: in, like, Lake
0: Ontario. I wasn't, like, you know, in one of the five boroughs, but they called me, you know, New Yorker. Uh, but, okay, it didn't take me long to become a Texan, I've, you know, lived here uh, for the better part of 27 years now, but I do remember what it felt like to be an outsider, to not understand, to be a little bit of a misfit. Um, and there's so many ways that happens in our lives. I mean, uh, many of the ways I think are much more painful and serious than what I just described. Um, you know, maybe when you think back to growing up, you think of pain you experienced. Maybe you were left out uh, by a group of people, or you were bullied, or you just had a hard time. You just always sort of felt like you were on the outside, not really welcomed. Uh, maybe in this season in our country's history, you feel like a political misfit. Uh, maybe your life right now doesn't look like uh, the life of most of the people your age for one reason or another uh, maybe you feel like a misfit in your own family because of your priorities your personality you don't feel like you quite are accepted or quite fit in or maybe you feel like a spiritual misfit you know does god really love me is he even real maybe there's something in your past that you feel like disqualifies you from really enjoying any kind of relationship with God or being accepted into his church. I think the holidays can amplify these feelings, if we have them. Because this is a time of year that it's supposed to be kind of warm and fuzzy, right? That's the messaging of the culture. And so these feelings, if we feel like an outsider or not accepted, it's almost like the volume gets turned up on those feelings. Of course, Christmas is about Jesus, and in many respects, he was a misfit uh, in his life from other people's perspectives. You know, he kind of showed up in a weird time. He, he he sort of showed up in a, the wrong way. He didn't have quite the right message from what people were expecting. He had the wrong friends. You know, his siblings did not believe in him. So he didn't have a lot of support from his family. He spent the first several years of his life as a refugee in Egypt, a, a foreign uh, culture and context. So Jesus didn't really fit in in lots of ways. He didn't live up to expectations. Not to mention, he was God in the flesh. He had always existed in eternity, and he had uh, in unimaginable splendor and had lowered himself to become like one of us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He comes to earth and walks the dusty roads of the world that he made. It's the most beautiful misfit story of all. And in fact, the first chapter of John kind of speaks to this aspect of Of the Christmas story About how Jesus didn't quite fit in I want to just read a few verses to you John chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 John is talking about Jesus Whom he calls the light And he says The true light That gives light to everyone Was coming into the world This is Christmas he's talking about He was in the world And though the world was made through him The world did not recognize him He came to that which was his own But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus, true light, John says, made the world. And when he stepped into that world that he made, he, he went largely unrecognized of who he actually is. He was a misfit from the vantage point of his own creation, but Jesus was not coming to earth to try to fit in with us. He came to invite us to fit in with him. That's what his mission was about. There are no misfits in God's eyes. There is nobody beyond rescue and redemption. Only people that he loves made in his image whom he loves deeply. It's interesting, when the New Testament writers uh, wrote down the story of Jesus and his life. And when they wrote the part that we think of as the Christmas story, they started off with a genealogy, this list of names, um, which you know is kind of like Jesus' birth certificate. It's his family tree. There are some heroes in this list, some people we don't know anything about, some ordinary people, uh, and some misfits. There are some unexpected people in this list. If you were thinking what the list of God's son's family should be made up of, there are some people that are unexpected, unexpected ancestors of Jesus. People living generations before Christ, misfits in their own day, people uh, who would not have been described by their peers as godly or virtuous. And yet when Jesus' genealogy is written down, these misfit ancestors, they didn't get cut out, they didn't get conveniently left out. Jesus was not presented to us with this perfect pedigree. No, when we open the Gospel of Matthew to the to the Christmas story, the beginning here, we see these misfits in Jesus' background presented unapologetically to us. Here they are. Why would that be? I think it's because they tell us something of God's heart and they foreshadow aspects of Jesus' character and his mission. And that's what this series over the next few weeks is going to be be about. We're going to shine a light on this very easily overlooked part of the Christmas story, the easiest part to skip, the genealogy, the list of names. Because when you zoom in there, you find these misfits, and it's incredible the light they shine on what Jesus was about. So we're going to look at four of them, four misfits in Jesus' family tree, uh, four women whose lives uh, helped paint the beautiful backdrop of the Christmas story, and Point forward to Jesus and His mission. Um, so when you jump into the Gospel of Matthew, you don't have to turn there. Uh, we're just going to look at a few verses here. It, this is how it starts out. This is the Christmas story introduction. Is this genealogy and It says this? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We're going to talk about her in this series as well. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and we're going to talk about her today, Rahab. These are not just names. These are people who lived lives, who God worked through. And if you flip back to the Old Testament, you can learn something about them. We find that Rahab was an outsider in her own time. That she stands out as a misfit in the genealogy as a woman, when most of the people on the list were were men, but she was deliberately included for us to notice. And we're going to see why. Uh, So if you brought your Bible, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 2. If you are unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, you can find Joshua there. It's toward the the beginning of the Bible, after the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to start in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, those Bibles on the tables, uh, feel free to grab one of those. You can actually take it home. I'd love for that to be our gift to you. But as always, we'll have the scripture on the screen as well. So just quick, like, 30-second background on Joshua. God's people, the ancient Israelites, had been enslaved in Egypt. They had um, gained their freedom by God rescuing them from slavery. He used Moses to lead that. Effort And the people of Israel have been wandering around in the desert nomadically for about a generation. And now they're about to enter the promised land, this land that God had said, I'm going to give you this land, you're going to be my people, here's where you're going to live. And now a man named Joshua is in charge. He was Moses' uh, protege, and now he's in charge. And the very first step as Israel come into the promised land is they got to attack Jericho, this fortified city-state right on the border. And um, so to prepare for that... Joshua sends spies into the city. Let's look what happened. Joshua 2.1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Note the proper Hebrew pronunciation. Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered, highlight this, the house of a prostitute named Rahab. They went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay, so these two spies are sent in to check out Jericho, and they go to this woman's house, Rahab. Look how she's introduced. Her identity is what she did. She was a prostitute. She was known as that. She was an immoral person. She was publicly known as a person who was immoral. She clearly would not have had any respect in that culture. She would have been vulnerable, uh, overlooked, probably a lifetime of being taken advantage of. This is what we know about Rahab. Her house was probably an inn. Um, Many scholars think that's why the spies would have known uh, that they could stay there. This was common practice. So we've just met Rahab. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So do you see what is going on here? Rahab is willing to risk her life commit treason against the king of Jericho, her own people, to protect these Israelite spies and invading people. Why would she do that? We're going to find out. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Highlight that if you're taking notes. I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and I would highlight the rest of this, the Lord your God is God, in heaven, above, and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Uh, highlight those two instances of the word kindness. Show kindness to my family because i show kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the love. So now we see why Rahab did what she did. She had heard about God's actions in preparing Israel's way up to this moment. She believes God is real. She believes he's powerful. She is showing kind of an elementary trust in God, an imperfect trust in God, yeah, an incomplete trust, an impersonal trust, but it's trust nonetheless. She believes he's real. She believes he's going to act. And she's asking from these spies— for kindness in return for the kindness that she showed them, but kindness in the English uh, translation is weak compared to the, the Hebrew word that uh, was written here that is translated as kindness. The the Hebrew word is hesed. We've talked about this word around here before. It's it's this beautiful word in in Hebrew that uh, it, it corresponds more closely to the word grace in the New Testament, but it's this idea of love in action. Faithful love demonstrated, loyalty. Um, sometimes it's translated loving kindness. And this is a word used to describe God all the time in the Old Testament. God is, he, he shows this kind of love to his people. And so she's asking, she says, I've shown that to you, show that to me. She's asking the spies and the Israelites to show one of God's qualities to her and her family. And they agreed to her terms. So let's keep reading, verse 15. So she let them down by a rope through the window. But the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return. And then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us. Unless, when we enter the land, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father and mother brothers and all your family into your house. Go ahead and circle Scarlet Cord in that verse. If any of them, verse 19, go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they took She tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now what happens next, if you keep reading Joshua, is this famous scene. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, it's one of the most famous moments in the Old Testament where the Israelites surround Jericho and they march around Jericho and they blow the trumpets and the walls of Jericho miraculously fall down and the Israelites rush into the city. So let's see what happens in chapter 6. You don't have to flip there. It's just going to look at two verses. Joshua 6, 24 and 25, this happens. It says this, Then they burn the whole city, And everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. I would highlight that last phrase. It's so significant. She lives among the Israelites to this day. She wasn't just spared and then, you know, see you later. She was this pagan, Gentile, non-Israelite, prostitute resident of an enemy city, outcast in her own town, different ethnically from the Israelites, different religiously. She's in an immoral line of work. Not only is she spared by the Israelites, she is welcomed into their community, into their family. And we know that God provided for her because... When we flip back over to Matthew, the Christmas story, when the genealogy is being presented, we see that she married an Israelite man, and that she had a child, and she ends up in Jesus' genealogy. And we get to see who that child is when we read Matthew. It says, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. So we see that Rahab's son was Boaz. And if you're familiar with that name, it's because in the book of Ruth, he's a key figure. We studied Ruth here last spring. You may remember the story of Ruth. She was an outsider. She's not an Israelite. She's from Moab, which is an enemy of Israel. She's a widow. She's vulnerable. And this man, Boaz, takes her in and ends up marrying her. And the story of Ruth is a story of God's Hesed, loving kindness to Ruth in this season of vulnerability. And I want to make sure you grasp the significance of this when you look at this genealogy. Ruth is part of Jesus' genealogy too. So we have these two women, Rahab, who's not Israelite, she's from Jericho. Ruth, who's not Israelite, she's from Moab. They're both in Jesus' genealogy. I think the reason Boaz was so compassionate and welcoming to Ruth is his own mom was Rahab. He grew up in a household with a mom who was an outsider, prostitute in Jericho, and had been welcomed into God's family. And look what God did through her. And then she has this son, Boaz, who in turn shows this kindness to Ruth. And she is invited in. And so Rahab and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, these misfits, these outsiders, they are shown grace, they're shown kindness, acceptance by this community, by these men with power who have the desire to help. And Rahab and Ruth become the great-great-grandmother and great-grandmother of King David. The, the, arguably the most celebrated figure in Israelite history before Jesus. And of course they were ancestors of Jesus himself. These two misfits, Rahab and Ruth, pagan, non-Israelite women, vulnerable in that culture, not only accepted it to God's people, but playing pivotal roles as ancestors of King David and of Jesus. And this is the point. That's why we're looking at all of this. Rahab and Ruth's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy tells us that rescuing, restoring, welcoming outsiders was part of Jesus' family heritage. It's part of his family DNA. It's right there. So I want to focus just for a minute on Rahab, who we've been reading about from Jericho, some lessons we can take from her life, a few things. Rahab imperfectly trusted God, and it was hard to do so. She trusted that God was real, and he was acting, and she wanted to to be in alignment with what he was doing. It wasn't uh, perfect trust, but it was there. It was the beginning of a trust. She also, secondly, Rahab risked her life to rescue herself and her family. So Rahab imperfectly trusted God. It was hard to do so. She risked her life to rescue herself and her family. And thirdly, Rahab's scarlet cord was her banner of freedom. Rahab's scarlet cord was her banner of freedom. And now these qualities are amazing examples that we can focus on, you know, how she's an example of bravery and courage and we need to be courageous and we should try to trust God like she did. But I think thinking that way puts too much of the emphasis on us and and our own efforts to be awesome at having faith. And, And we just need to be brave and courageous sort of in our own strength. But we don't want to do that. We want to keep the focus on God because there's a deeper lesson here The real story about Rahab is that her actions pointed forward and foreshadowed what God would do through his son, Jesus. Because this is the key point. Jesus is the greater Rahab. There are elements of her life that find their full expression in the life of Jesus. And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. So we talked about Rahab. The first thing here was she imperfectly trusted God and it was hard to do so. Jesus perfectly trusted God when it was hard to do so. You know, he, coming to earth, becoming human was hard. Accepting human limitations and frailty created many moments when Jesus had to choose to trust the Father, and he was fully God, but he was fully human. He experienced fear and doubt and everything that we experience. And I think that the best example of that was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing his crucifixion, and he prays to the Father and says, if there's any other way we can do this, can we please do it another way? But not my will be done, your will be done. That's a perfect trust in God. It's not saying it's not hard, or he's not scared, but he's just trusting in his Father. So Rahab imperfectly trusted God, Jesus perfectly trusted God. The second thing is, Rahab risked her life to rescue herself and her family. Jesus didn't risk his life, he gave his life to rescue you and me. Jesus gave his life to rescue you and me. He didn't just risk it. He planned to lose his life all along. He came to earth to redeem us, knowing what it would cost him. And then finally, Rahab's scarlet cord was the banner of her freedom. The cross of Christ is our banner of freedom. That is our scarlet cord, the symbol and seal of our salvation. The signal of our rescue, the embodiment, the physical manifestation of God's, has said, loyal, faithful love to us is the cross and what Jesus did there. So, how does all this change Christmas? How, how does this impact what we think about in this season of the year? I think the reason that Matthew wanted us to consider Jesus' genealogy when thinking about his birth. Is that we do feel like misfits And we feel like outsiders And we struggle to feel accepted by God And, and, and by uh, Including people like Rahab In Jesus' genealogy it Is a reminder Of how God has worked through Jesus' life We have to remember Rahab and Ruth Outsiders, written off by society Easily overlooked Easily written off And yet we see them intentionally, deliberately Put into this genealogy For us to look at and it tells us that not only does God accept outsiders and misfits, people who think they don't belong, he loves them, and he has plans for them, to work powerfully for them, in spite of what they might think about themselves, in spite of what others might think about themselves. We see this all over Jesus' ministry, It's the way God worked for these outsiders. Just like Rahab had this imperfect, incomplete faith in God, we, too— can trust in God when life is hard and when our future is uncertain or we don't feel accepted. We can trust in God even when our faith is feeble because God's trustworthiness is not dependent on how good we are at having faith, but on who he is. Just like Rahab showed kindness to the spies and asked for it in return, we can trust that God loves us that way and perfectly. And he proved it by sending his son, Jesus, the greater Rahab, whose rescue mission, beginning at Christmas, required his life. He became a helpless baby to one day grow up and fulfill his mission, not to hang a scarlet banner of freedom for himself, but to hang as a scarlet banner for our freedom. The goal of Christmas is the cross, Rahab was a misfit in her own time, outcast. little hope, no dignity. God had plans for her. She could have never imagined that we'd be talking about her today. God had plans that would play out in her family, in her descendants. She was part of Jesus' story. She was a part of showing us God's heart that the Rahabs are welcome. He wants the Rahabs to come to him. And in a sense, we are all Rahabs because of our sin. There are no misfits in God's eyes. Through Jesus, the greater Rahab, anyone, can become a child of God, as it said in the Gospel of John. Jesus wasn't coming into the world to fit in with us, but to give himself and invite us to fit in with.